0: Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 11, Francis Pegamagabo, the Deadliest Sniper of the First World War. Francis Peggy Pegamagabo was the deadliest sniper on the Western Front, one of the most decorated First Nations soldiers in the entire Canadian expeditionary force, and an active leader and activist for the Anishinaabe peoples until his death. Truly, both a 20th century First Nations and Canadian legend. The book recommendation this week is the wonderful book written by Francis's grandson, Professor Brian McKinnis, titled Sounding Thunder, the Stories of Francis Pegamagabow, published by University of Manitoba Press in 2016. It's an historical account of Francis's life through the numerous stories told by Francis himself and related by his descendants. I also want to personally thank the people at KUMD Duluth Public Radio for giving me access to their audio files and an interview with Professor Brian McKinnis. Okay, let's get started. Francis was born on March 9, 1889, on land that is now part of the Shawanaga First Nations near the village of Noble, on the shores of Perry Sound in Ontario. Francis's people were Ojibwe Nishnabi, and his name in Ojibwe was Binaswi, uh, meaning the wind that blows off. His father passed away from an unknown illness when Francis was young and his mother moved back to her people's reserve when she contracted what was thought to be the same illness. Francis was thus left on the Shawanaga Reserve and raised by a local elder, where he was taught traditional indigenous skills, including fishing and hunting, which he excelled in. Francis was fluent in Ojibwe and had a working grasp on the English language. Interestingly, he was raised as both a practicing Catholic and embracing Nishnawi spirituality. So for those at home, Nishnawi is the name applied to a group of culturally related peoples stretching from the Great Lakes all the way into modern-day Manitoba. This includes the Ojibwe, but also groups like the Ottawa, Oji-Cree, Chippewa, Potawatomi, and others. Francis's grandson told me that Francis often identified as Nishnawi as recognition of his shared cultural heritage with these indigenous peoples from across that region. So Francis grew up on the oral histories of his Nishnawi people, uh, including those of great Ojibwe warriors and the battles that had been fought on his traditional territory. His grandson Brian McInnes writes that, and I quote, he took pride in the warrior tradition that ran through his lineage, end quote. Unlike many of his people, though, Francis was able to secure financial support in order to complete his high school education, and he eventually found a job working for the Department of Marine and Fisheries on the Great Lakes as a marine firefighter. In 1914, when war broke out, Francis embraced his warrior lineage and enlisted. What is a bit harder to understand is how Francis was able to successfully enlist so early in the war. You see, in the early years of the war, the Canadian Expeditionary Force actively turned away First Nation volunteers due to a vague policy expressed by then Minister of Militia Sir Sam Hughes, which was rooted in the general prejudice of the time of white Canadians towards Indigenous people. Nonetheless, despite systemic prejudice, Francis made it through the enlistment process. Perhaps the Anishinaabe charms he carried, which would help make him so hard to detect on the Western Front, were already at work even back in Canada. Before he left to basic training at Valcartier in Quebec, he underwent the ritual ceremonies in preparing a warrior to go to war. These were ritual ceremonies banned by the Canadian government and enforced through government agents and local Catholic priests. Nonetheless, Francis believed that his ritual preparation became instrumental in helping him survive the war. After basic training, Francis was shipped to England to undergo further training and was during this time affectionately given the nickname Peggy by his fellow soldiers. Peggy soon found himself arriving in France in February 1915 with the 1st Canadian Infantry Battalion of the 1st Canadian Infantry Division. His first taste of battle came at the Second Battle of Ypres in April 1915, known infamously as the first gas attack. His unit was in fact in reserve when the Germans released clouds of chlorine gas on a North African division stationed to the left of the Canadians, and Francis and his fellow soldiers were eventually thrown into the line to block the Germans from exploiting what was turning out to be a rout of the North African soldiers. This route could have exposed or even allowed the Germans to capture the city of Ypres. Like many of his soldiers, Francis was forced to urinate in his handkerchief and hold it over his mouth to mitigate the worst effects of the chlorine gas. The Canadians held the line, and Ypres was saved. Before we continue, I just want to remind everyone listening at home that you can find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, Twitter, at Doc Boris. it's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S, and also we're now on Instagram as well. You can find us at our homepage, CoolCanadianHistory.com. On our Facebook page and on our homepage, there are donation links via PayPal or Patreon. Uh, This podcast, frankly, survives on donations from our listeners. In an age where you can get your content for free almost everywhere, your ability to choose where your dollars go is an incredible show of support. And we couldn't survive without it, so thank you. Now on with the show. So after Francis' first year on the Western Front, he was promoted to Lance Corporal and was one of the first Canadians to receive the Military Medal. His citation for the Military Medal noted his continual bravery in action and constant disregard for his own safety. Peggy went on to participate in numerous other actions, He fought during the Somme Offensive, where he was shot in the left leg in September of 1916. He recovered from this wound, and while many soldiers could have taken this as an opportunity to never see the front again, Peggy returned. In November 1917, he took part in the infamous Battle of Passchendaele, helping to hold the ruins of Passchendaele Village until reinforcements arrived to secure the village and the ridge. For his role in this battle, he received his first bar to the military medal. And he would, in fact, earn a second bar to his military medal later during the Battle of the Scarp in late August 1918. This is part of the Canadian Corps' spearheaded 100 Days Campaign. Now, having two bars to one's military medal is essentially like having received the military medal three times. He was one of only 39 Canadians to receive this honor. By the time his service was up, he had been promoted up the chain of command to sergeant major. Though there was no question that Peggy was a brave and courageous soldier, perhaps his best-known contribution to the war effort came in between the major battles. You see, it did not take long for Peggy's skills as an Ojibwe hunter to translate onto the battlefield, And he became well-known for both his ability to silently scout enemy positions and, most famously, for his deadly sniper ability. Though it is difficult to accurately track enemy killed by sniper fire, as snipers did not formally keep records and Peggy did not use a spotter who could confirm his kills, it is believed Peggy killed an astonishing 378 Germans. This would make him the most deadliest sniper amongst British Commonwealth, French, and American soldiers serving in the Western Front. Essentially, the deadliest sniper amongst all Entente forces. Interestingly, Peggy achieved this success while using the much-maligned Ross rifle. Uh, For those who don't know, this Canadian-made rifle became entirely unsuitable for common usage by soldiers on the Western Front. Most Canadians opted for the more reliable British Lee Enfield. Yet, when it was kept clean, the Ross rifle was a superior sniper's weapon. An interesting side point, there were Afghan snipers who were found using a Ross rifle against the Russians as late as the 1980s. Uh, We'll do another episode on the Ross rifle itself at a later date. In general, Francis appeared to have good relations with his fellow soldiers. Many began to, in fact, believe that Francis was protected by other worldly powers. His tent was decorated with protective images. He had been taught how to draw these images by Anishinaabe medicine people before the war. One story told by Francis highlights the power of his spirituality on the front. His unit was stuck in a German crossfire and couldn't move because of the rain and the mud. One of the officers, according to Francis, gave him tobacco and earnestly requested that he try and do something about their situation. He prayed to the sky spirits. The weather changed just enough to allow the men to escape. The rumors of a quote-unquote Indian that could invoke the spirits spread quickly. In a later incident, Francis's battalion was hit with a mustard gas attack. The winds were blowing hard against the Canadians, thus pushing the mustard gas rapidly towards them. At this moment, Francis recounts that General Alderson, at that time commander of the 1st Canadian Infantry Division, so a major senior officer, brought tobacco directly to Francis and asked him if he could do anything to help. Francis employed a traditional Nishinaabe ritual, asking the wind spirits to change direction. The spirits listened, and the winds changed Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, as you can tell, Francis' belief in Nishnabi spirituality played a pretty important role for him on the Western Front. So let's take a listen to Francis' grandson, Professor Brian McKinnis, tell us about Francis' views on Nishnabi spirituality. Now, in this story, Brian is relating a time when Francis was comforting another Nishnavi soldier on how to survive on the Western Front using Nishnabi charms. And again, a big thank you to our friends at KUMD Duluth Public Radio for giving us access to this interview. Take a listen.
1: Ahau. Uh-huh. Gishpen Ashgoi Ninaman Gunamagana Gego Arjko Batina and So this is what Francis said to the soldier, Well then, if you're already thinking this way that something's going to happen to you, then something most surely will. If you're already afraid of being killed when you're amongst all of those soldiers, then your fear is what will get you killed. But then Francis said to him, Me dash U Inind, Migein. Bukwak bedon ayan tikwans e tikwans miske isa shagundaman yo. So when you are there, break apart a branch, a dry, dead branch, and chew on it a little while. Koshko agundezin yo, wiyashe agundem You're not to swallow this, but keep this in your mouth. Mige ongejabuian, and you too will be able to pass through the lines. Migo geget kajichigedajkoz exit. So this is what he did this man who had been so afraid, now that he had seen what to do. Hm gonna so kidogwa. Ga So one day in the war this man who was who had gone overseas at this time uh, said to himself Hm, I'm likely going to get killed sitting here during a time of fierce battle. And he thought this one day during the war, and as he was thinking this, he remembered what Francis had said to him about to br- how he was to find and break apart a, a dry dead branch. Gisha dun giewang and he chewed on this and was able then to pass through the enemy lines unseen. Gawin Gaza gazasi, gishabuid Gwa and he did not get shot, he did not get killed, and he passed right through. So, you see, he was able to pass through those enemy lines and made it back safely.
0: Francis' war experience was nothing short of incredible, but it was also tragic. Incredible in that he arrived in France in 1915, survived the entirety of war, and finally left the war-torn continent in 1919. It was, of course, tragic, because regardless of his spiritual protection, he was not the same man he was before he arrived in France. His medical report from March 1919 writes that he was suffering from what was called exhaustion psychosis, and that he had, and I quote, suspected dementia and was suffering from depression and partial loss of mental function, end quote. Frankly, all the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Though... By May 1919, his medical supervisor wrote, and I quote again, There is no evidence at the present time of any delusions of persecution, and he has no hallucinations. His judgment appears good, and there is no evidence of there being any mental disease at present time. End quote. Francis was finally discharged back into civilian life. Sadly, Francis would return to a Canada that continued to ignore its indigenous people and all but ignored the efforts of indigenous soldiers that served in the First World War. Francis actually joined the local militia after the war, but he quickly became a First Nations activist, using his decorated war service as a vehicle to engage the government on indigenous issues. He was elected leader of his Perry Island Band in 1921 and as chief he was often pitted in jurisdictional struggles with the local Indian agent, the representative sent by the Department of Indian Affairs, whom he did not get along with at all. Yet his time as chief would soon become the subject of attacks by many in his own tribe for being too traditional. You see controversially Francis sought to expel from the reserve non-Indigenous and First Nations of mixed European Indigenous ancestry. He sought to return his band to a more traditional political system whereby the elders would have more influence amongst their people. By 1925, the opposition amongst his own people had mounted, and he was forced to resign. He continued his activism on behalf of his people though and engaged constantly in frustrating attempts to open the eyes of the Canadian government to the poor treatment of the Anishinaabe. The Canadian government often painted him as suffering from a mental sickness and sought to alienate him from his people and alienate his cause. Regardless of his disillusionment with the Canadian government, he was always proud of his service. His children recall how the month of November and in particular Remembrance Day itself was always a very special time for him. During the Second World War, he even worked as a guard at a munitions plant near Nobel, Ontario and maintained his position of sergeant major in the local militia until his death. That death came in 1952. Francis passed away at the age of 61. He stands as a member of the Indian Hall of Fame, and the 3rd Canadian Ranger Patrol Group Headquarters Building at Canadian Forces Base Borden is named after him. He was the inspiration for Joseph Boyden's popular novel Three Day Road. Among his many awards and commendations, one of the most interesting commemorations is the statue of him in Perry Sound, which was erected in 2016. On one arm is an eagle, his spirit animal. At his feet is a caribou representing the clan he belonged to, and on his other arm is a Ross rifle slung from his shoulder. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris. that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.